ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're gonna get started. Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Coons. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, please remember to subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and check out our website at theinnerlooplit.org. For any new listeners out there, here on the Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration or craft, publishing or editing, how to make a living, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. Sometimes we play clips of local writers reading their work at our monthly reading series. Other times we invite those writers, as well as other members of the literary community, to join our discussion. On today's show, let's talk about research and fiction. Uh, I am primarily a nonfiction writer, but if I were to venture into fiction, I feel like it would be historical fiction. What about you, Court? Yeah, I definitely, that's that's my jam for sure. That's my jam. (laughs) What can we say? We love facts. (laughs) I feel like also, you know, you can make the argument that even fiction that happens in the present is historical fiction, right? Because you have to know, you have to have all of the the background information to create the characters, to create the setting, to um, build the plot line. I'm thinking about Dan, our friend who writes science fiction and even that you have to have like all of the history of it has the world to be heavily researched right yeah. yeah yeah it's so true but I feel I often feel so daunted by research because you know even we took a, a Courtney were you in my research uh class at Sarah with, Lawrence with Suzanne no it was with not Suzanne, I can't remember his name. You put me on the spot. Sorry. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I did take a research class, which was actually meant for multi genres. Um, and we did a bunch of projects, we did interviews, we did a research based project. Um, but still, now post MFA, I still feel like a little bit lost of where to start when I want to start a big project that I know is going to require a lot of research. Um, you know, I don't know. Libraries are always good because I, I just feel like the physicality of it makes it less daunting. Um, but still, I feel daunted. I don't know about you. I mean, libraries are great because there are also people there who can guide you, walk you through the archives, show you different databases, that kind of thing. Um, I, in addition to being a writer, I'm a professional researcher. <laughs> so if I were not good at it, it would... It Should would, we be uh, interviewing Courtney? What's, what's the... <laughs> no, but it's, it's definitely a different kind of research. I mean, there are certain tools and strategies that translate, right? But when I'm doing research, it's for, um, you know, mostly scientific projects. Uh, but so that's, that's cool. the other thing, isn't it? It's like the more specific the topic is, the better off you are, like diving into yeah, a project. Definitely. Like if I, I wanted so. to research transgenerational trauma, I feel like, you know, there's thousands of things I would find at least online, like, you know, deep dives, like a lot like psychoanalytical things that are really opaque and difficult to 
parse through, you know, anywhere, anything from that to pop culture articles. Um, you know, how do you, how do you, I don't know, filter it down into something useful. No, I think you, you hit a really hit on a really good point there. Um, find a specific story that you can start with and that will open up um, the floodgates kind of. So if you know of a person who experienced, who had a particular experience or was from the place where you want to set your story and grew up there and their family grew up there, like start with that person or that family or that thing that has grounding and then move outward from that. I find that really helpful because starting broad, you know, I think we teach a lot to start broad. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is not always the easiest because there's such a wealth of information in the world right now um, Mm -hmm. and seemingly at our fingertips, but it is a really special skill to figure out how to sift through it all. Yeah. To sort through it all. And I feel like, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you think of research is uh, setting, you know, researching a specific place or a specific time. But I feel like it can be so much more than that. You could research specific characters or, you know, social norms. uh, What were people doing or what are people doing in other parts of the world? Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's there's so many possibilities. Yeah, I the one thing that sticks out for me and and that is daunting um, is something that I you know was kind of etched into my mind from Sarah Lawrence actually from the class I took with Suzanne and she was like if you don't put in the work to get it right you have no business writing (laughs) (laughs) and it was I paraphrased that but in a sense it was like you can't have a character in your story who is um I don't know a Parisian expat if you're not one and you don't do the research to find out what that experience is actually like and so I've Mm -hmm. always been very very careful (laughs) um to make sure you know you put in the work before you even start. Yeah. Well, now that we know what the motivation is, let's, let's get more on the methods uh, and bring in the expert. Uh, And our next guest is certainly an expert. Stay tuned to hear from bestselling author, Lauren Francis Sharma. Gather. Gather. Get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We've been discussing research and fiction, and now we'd like to welcome Lauren Francis Sharma, author of best-selling novel Till the Well Runs Dry and her latest Book of the Little Axe. Book of the Little Axe spans decades and oceans from Trinidad to the American West, and Kirkus Reviews calls the novel a persuasively researched account so richly evocative of a relatively obscure corner of history as to make it seem almost phantasmagorical. Uh, what a review. What better person to talk to us about research and fiction? Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So great to have you. And phantasmagorical. What a word. What a word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so walk us through the process of researching a novel from beginning to end. You know, like say you have an idea. One of our listeners, they have an idea. They know it will require a lot of research. Where do you start? 
run. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> no, um, I heard you all talking. <clears throat> Sorry. I heard you all talking. Um, and I, I don't, I don't like research, right? But I'm, <laughs> I'm super attracted to historical novels as well. I love to read them and I like to write them. Um, but the research is daunting indeed. Um, I usually have an idea and I have characters and that really lends itself to sort of how I'm going to actually research with, um, with Book of the Little Axe. I thought about a girl and I knew sort of where she was or I thought I knew where she was and I thought I knew the time. And I remember thinking to myself, wait, there's this black girl who lives in Trinidad and it's the 1700s. Like, how is this working? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I ran home. And I just started to Google. First thing was, is it possible to be free black in Trinidad in the 1700s? (laughs) Like, how is this possible? Um, And that's when I started to come up with things. Oh, yeah, actually. Um, And it so happens that one of the books on my shelf, uh, on my private bookshelf, um, had some answers for me. So I began there. Um, I started to look at the resources in that book. And, um, and then I, I found those resources and, and, and dug a little deeper. Um, so once I knew it was sort of plausible, what I was thinking was like, okay, mm-hmm. there's this family. Um, then I sort of began to actually do a little bit of the writing because it's the writing that gets me super excited. Okay. So if I could ground myself in the characters and in the story, then I could sort of research around, so to speak. Um, one of the big things, of course, is anytime you're you're researching a historical novel, you want to know what's happening in the world, not just sort of mm-hmm. where your location is, but also what's happening in the world that can actually impact how your characters are seeing things. So that's sort of that broadening that you're doing, like, okay, so it's 17, you know, something in 1700s and what's happening in the late 1700s in, in Trinidad and um, and what's happening in the countries that are actually impacting this small country, right? So what's happening in England in mm-hmm. England and and um in in the French colonies and in, in, sorry in France. Um so then I'm starting to sort of get a, a better idea of what's happening in the world and how my characters who have already sort of imagined might be thinking and acting and reacting to 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 what's happening in the world. So it's not, it sounds like, well, first of all, you made a a really great point of, you know, finding one source and then seeing what sources they used, which is always helpful. (laughs) It's that like breadcrumb trail thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But how do you know? So you, you said that you kind of start writing as you're researching is, does that process continue for you the whole way like that? Or is there a point where you stop research and you're like, I'm just writing now? (sighs) Yeah, I, I, I wish that, um, that I could stop researching, but I can't. And sometimes I have to dig deeper for a longer period of time. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I get stuck. I want to know kind of what's happening, not just at this time, but, um, for instance, what do people wear? And, mm-hmm. you know, in this part of the world at this time, like, so, and how am I going to find this out? So then I have to go looking at sort of diaries and letters from, um, from colonists, 
you know, who were in the West Indies at the time and, you know, kind of what they're talking about. So they're, you know, they're talking about horses and, and it's hot and, you know, and there's just a lot of information, um, that you can glean from sort of, you know, firsthand accounts. Um, but also, you know, looking at pictures on, on, on Google, like, what did people, <laughs> what did people wear? Um, and what is refrigeration like at that time? And how are people, and what, what are the, the pots and how are people cooking at this time? And you, you sort of, I mean, we've grown up in with enough sort of movies and books sort of informing us a little bit, but the details are, are, are yes. not quite the same. Right. Mm-hmm. And you could, and you don't know when the icebox, when, when does the icebox actually, when was that invented? Um, and, <laughs> and what were they doing? Um, and so there's a lot of like little details from scene to scene that stop your ability to sort of mm-hmm. write the story because you don't want to write that, you know, she was, um, you know, wearing cowboy boots made of, you know, calf leather if there are no calves around. <laughs> right. In there, right? Um, mm-hmm. So. Um, so you just want to be really careful and sort of scene by scene and, and, and that causes you to stop a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not just sort of the, the overarching story. It's also the minor details that you're trying to get right. Um, what are the trees like? What are the, you know, what kind of grasses are growing? What are the, what are the foods at this time of the year? One of the things I always like to, to remind people because I need to remind myself is if you can get your timeline right, you are golden, right? Because then you know what you're operating, what years you're operating in. So if you can think about sort of what span of time your book is going to operate in, even if you, you fudge a little bit and change a little bit, like that's super helpful. Getting your timeline mm-hmm. set. It's so funny that you say you hate research because I feel <laughs> Like that story tells a lot of research. Um, One of the biggest questions I have, I mean, I feel like lots of people have, um, because as writers, we procrastinate a lot. And, you know, some would argue that that is a good thing because it's, you know, the fallow periods and your brain needs rest. And so you're, you know, it's productive even when you're procrastinating, but other times you're really just procrastinating. So, um, you know, my question is with, with, what you're describing, the way that you wrote it was a lot of research and a lot of writing that was sort of interwoven. How did you pull yourself out of the research to go back to writing and vice versa? For me, that feels like it would be very difficult um, to sort of get myself out of the storyline and go back to, you know, other brain me who's collecting information. Um, It just feels like two different parts of my brain and it would be hard to transfer back and forth. So how do you know when to stop? And then how did you make those transitions? Uh, yeah, I think that's a really good question. How do you know when to stop? Um, you know, and I mentioned it before a little bit about sort of writing scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if you know that you want to get your character from sort of point A to point B, and you've gotten enough material to sort of be able to write that scene, then, you know, you get to the writing. Um, and then, you know, the next chapter or the next, and it can be scenes or it can be chapters, however you're, you're, you're writing your work. Um, Mm -hmm. the other part, by the way, is that I, (laughs) surprisingly, I was in carpool and in my kid's carpool line. And, um, you know, I had, you know, the parents are all there and, you know, (laughs) chit chatting and, um, and, 
um, someone says to me, oh, so, you know, how's your new book going? I'm like, oh my God, this research is killing me. Like, I just, you know, I just want to write this story. And she said, oh, you know, I used to be a researcher for C-SPAN. And I'm just like, what? What's this you're saying? <laughs> so, um, so, you know, sort of maybe a third through my book, I actually ended up sort of hiring another mommy to help me with wow. the research. And so um, she, I'm pretty sure, shaved off about a year's worth of work for me. Oh my God, that's awesome. Because she's a professional researcher and there wow. is a difference, by the way. And, you know, I remember being like talking to my, to my, to my partner and, um, and I was saying to him, you know, I, I don't know, you know, like, you know, this money and, you know, you got to put this money forth and how am I going to afford this and da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. He's like, what? He's like, time, <laughs> time. <Yes. laughs> this is going to cut down on your, uh, you know, on you doing the work, like just yes. give her discrete tasks. So at the end of sort of my, um, my, re my research relationship with her, like she'd given me binders on specific things that like I wanted that I knew I could mm -hmm. go back to when, um, when I needed. So I mentioned trees before, like she gave me trees from Montana Trees for Idaho, trees for Texas, oh trees for so cool. you know, grasses for, um, and these are things that I, I mean, I, you know, I really love those kinds of details in my work and I, I would have spent hours, mm -hmm. totally, you know, looking for, oh, and when do they bloom? And, you know, and, mm -hmm. and instead she's kind of given it to me. So discrete tasks. Um, to give her really helped me to be able to sort of write and I just would leave brackets in my, in my draft. Okay. This is what insert I need to know in order to here. write in certain okay. detail here. So it didn't stop me. Mm -hmm. Um, and even when I didn't have her, I still put the brackets in. It was mm -hmm. a good way to sort of keep the flow going. All right. I know that I need to figure out what kind of saddle she's using, if she's using a saddle at all, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, um, and what are they feeding the horses and, you know, all those little details that like, you know, you don't think about when you set out to write historical fiction that you really <laughs> actually need to know this. But, you know, I remember um, I'm a big fan of Hilary uh, Mantel and, you know, she's, she's always talking about sort of, you know, sticking with the facts, right? Like wh whatever mm -hmm. facts you have, um, you want to try to stick with it. And so in my mind, um, I, what I do try to be honest with and, and honor is is, you know, what's happening in the world at that time. Um, you know, um, the nature, I, for instance, I have, um, I have David Thompson is a big explorer, uh, uh, American explorer, um, mostly out West. Like if you're sort of on the East coast, you probably never heard of him, but, um, out West, he sort of did all the trading posts and he went from Canada down and cool. he's actually responsible for, you know, tons of, um, botany information. And anyway, he, he left this huge manual and, um, and it's like this diary of mm. 800 pages and I found it and I was like, Oh, fantastic. And his <laughs> dates didn't actually match with my dates. And I was like, wow, I'd love to, really, <laughs> love to like fudge this <laughs> a little bit because, you know, I, and I have one of my characters running into him and I was like, well, how can I make this work? But I actually ended up changing my entire storyline, um, my, my timeline in my story to sort of match, um, you know, his factual data, information. Um, yeah, which was, which was given, but you know, I mean, if you ask me later, I'll tell you how Hillary Mantel doesn't actually work that well for me, but anyway, you didn't ask. <laughs> 
I love it. If you come across a resource like that, you just have to follow it, I guess. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Those are some great methods, though. I really like the the bracketology. I, I definitely have done that before, like insert such and such. Um, but also, this must be super helpful to have, you know, once you've done all the work, are you able to transfer it from book to book sometimes or project to project, or at least like chapter to chapter? <laughs> you have a little bit... <laughs> Yeah, chapter to chapter. I wouldn't. Yeah. I don't know about book to book, but you right. know, I mean, all that information stays somewhere. So I, <laughs> I um, so I hope that it, it'll be useful. It's at least useful when I'm um, helping my kids with their history projects because I'm totally. like, you have no idea what mommy knows <laughs> from all my research. Um, so. <laughs> Tell me, so when so, you're but, like watching a TV show now, are you like, that's not right? That's, that's not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Writers love having that useless information. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so speaking of resources, uh, when you don't have a professional researcher at your fingertips, what are some of your favorite researchers? You mentioned Google and, you know, my biggest question about Google is how do you filter through the noise? Because um, there's just infinite information. And this is actually, you know, a huge cultural problem. Um, but also for writers, um, you know, you have to narrow it down. And sometimes you try to use Google Scholar, but sometimes those are too hard to understand. So what are some of the ways that you filter through that? And then are there other resources that you love? Yeah. Um, yeah. Google's really tricky um, because you don't know what you're getting. Um, I really did try to uh, rely a lot on sort of PhD thesis uh, theses, um, you know, books that had been written, um, where excerpts were taken and taken, and then I'd go and search for the book. Mm -hmm. Um, so mm -hmm. I was actually using Google as like a way to point me in the, in the right direction and mm. a little less, um, for factual information. Now for photos, um, it's great. And, you know, I have a scene in one of my books where someone's actually trying to catch a fish with, with their bare hands. And I watched about six hours of like <laughs> yeah. men in Montana, <laughs> <laughs> in lakes catching fish oh, with their hands, right? um, which is a whole what would have been a wasted day but I really had to figure out how are they doing this like what are they doing with their hands um huh. so um so Google comes in really handy in in, in some respects so um I yeah. you know it is a life-saving tool um or time-saving tool uh, but one of the things that um that I think is really underestimated is people Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there are a lot of people, uh, who know a lot of things who are willing to actually talk to writers, um, because, you know, you just said it, right? Like you have all this useless information <laughs> <laughs> and you'd like to share it with someone. So, um, so I found, um, you know, a sort of a part of my story is set, as I mentioned in Montana and Crow. Crow territory. And, you know, um, there's a couple of really amazing experts on sort of crow life at this time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I picked up the phone and called and he answered and he was willing. And then when I went to Montana, um, which, you know, I felt was a part of a good part of my research too. Um, and I ended up mm -hmm. going to Montana. I, you know, tried to meet him and, um, and, you know, talk to him more and get more, um, get more resources. I also sort of, um, had a crow couple who took me up on the, up on the mountain, um, to sort of show me where wow. 
physical mm-hmm. things would have been mm-hmm. placed because there's, you know, Google Earth is fantastic and, you know, but there's nothing like actually being on the ground, feeling the air, um, seeing what the trees yeah. look like, the colors, mm-hmm. um, how water flows. I mean, I, you know, and all of this is, is really important because, you know, I wrote a book that I feel is sort of an, a naturalist book yeah. <laughs> and or a nature book. I don't know how to say that, but, um, but you know, the earth. And so I felt like it was really important to sort of get those details, right. So people and places and getting on the ground, um, has mm. been just really important part of my research that, um, that I do feel is underestimated, uh, sometimes. Totally. I I didn't expect that answer, but as you were speaking, I was getting inspired and wanting to travel. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So any other tips uh, that you might have for listeners who, you know, are ready to start a research project, any sort of encouragement or warnings? (laughs) Yeah. um, Don't do it. Well, I, I mean, you know, if we're being really honest, um, because your listeners are writers, I mean, historical fiction is hard to sell yeah. Um, yeah. and it's, it's hard to sell and it's hard to get readers to actually, especially when I say historical fiction, anything before like 1900 is, you know, is tough for readers to sort of get. And I think, you know, we have sort of this, um, it, it, and it could be just, you know, what happened to us in school, right? We'd be given this sort of old English <laughs> novel and, you know, we're trying to plow our way through and, you know, there's this archaic language and it doesn't really work for us, you know, as, and, and then we, we find that we don't want to deal with that and we don't even want to try to break it open. Mm. So I think there, you know, there are some hazards to, to, to spending six years of your life or seven years of your life researching, you know, a beautiful book and then people being like, eh, I don't really like historical fiction. Which, you know, <laughs> not for me. Like, okay, well then please don't get on Google and Amazon and review it. We, we right. clearly know yeah. don't like just, just historical don't. fiction. Yeah. <laughs> we Feel don't free need to, to not weigh them. in. <laughs> so, but, um, but I also say that, um, that as a person of color, I found a lot of stumbling blocks, right? I mean, there were just mm. things um, I was researching about people of color, um, Native Americans and Black people, um, you know, in, in, in parts of the world where there was just no record keeping yeah. other than sort of, you know, body counting, right? I mean, yeah. like, mm. how did they live? Were they living as families? What does that look like? The whole thing. Um, and so, um, so there's a lot of imagination, but also a lot of work to dig mm-hmm. details that, you know, are harder to find because they're sort of buried within, um, usually a white male's sort of writings. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have this character, um, who's in the book, his name is Edward Rose and he was a guide, um, out West and he was a black man, but he was also a crow, um, as part of the crow nation. And, um, and so he was very well respected as, you know, someone who could actually get people from sort of, you know, Montana out West, Mm -hmm. um, further out West. And, um, and there are a lot of things that I came across about him 
that were very disparaging. You know, he's a thief. He's not honorable. He's this, he's that. And yet people kept coming back to him over and over again. And I started Mm. to be like, well, that's interesting. Like, why would you trust (laughs) your supplies Mm. and your men and your, you know, and your horses, you know, leading, you know, this, this horrible guy leading you. And I was like, oh, right, right, Lauren, you know, remember he's a black man and there's racism and Mm -hmm. there's, you know, I don't want to write home and tell someone that, you know, that I really need this, this guy to help me go West. So, um, so there's a lot of filtering out as a person of color that you have to do with the facts and really start to question like who wrote these facts? Why Mm -hmm. did they write those facts? And, you know, and are they actually facts? Um, Mm -hmm. I wrote a piece for Lit Hub sort of about that, you know, are the facts really the facts? And it's particularly about like writers of color sort of digging into material that um, was not written for us Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And that many times we just, um, people are just absent from it. You know, there were, like I said, just bodies counted, but not any real good factual information about people, you know, were living lives. They were having children, they were free people and, you know, they were building businesses because all of that sort of, um, ends up being, um, uh, researchable, I guess, later on, but you don't see the origins of it because it's not in anyone's written material. Right. Mm. Whose stories are, do we get to hear? Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Another reason why these types of novels are so important. Absolutely. Yeah. And it yeah. must be, that must be, you know, traumatizing um, on several different levels too. Like there's a beauty in doing it and, and, and unearthing these things, but it's heavy. It's, you know, it, I, yeah. yeah. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> Thank well, you. And rewarding, would, rewarding for certain. For sure. Definitely. Yeah, I would I would love to hear an excerpt of of all of the the fruits of your labor. <laughs> um sure, I'd love to do a little reading here. Um so the book um opens, even though um there is part of the the story that, that starts in 1796, the actual book opens in 1830. And Victor um, is the son of our heroine, Rosa. And um, when the book opens, they are on Bighorn Mountain. Only six of the seven boys saw it. Its teasing figure stilled inside a quiet wind. It was as if it wished to be seen. And indeed it was between blades of frosty golden grasses from the branches of a chilled cedar. The boys watched it in the silver light of that cold winter morning its horns like serrated half-moons, dying at its muscular jaw, the crackling ice echoing over the thrum of the boys' hearts. They had been told by the elders to bring back all their horses could carry, but the elders did not mean for the boys to hunt everything. Bighorn sheep were not for the taking. This they were told as small lads, and the boys knew well the warning. They'd heard of men who'd killed sheep on the mountain, knew what those men's fates had been. And so the dilemma for the boys that morning was how to ask and answer the hunter's eternal question. Does one from an abundance breed scarcity? So upon this land of shining mountains, each waited for the others, listening for the quickening breath of impatience or the steady sighs of acquiescence. And from the branches of the cedar, Victor searched below for Lykwind, who had been the first to mark the ram, the first to outstretch his solid arms and halt the party's movement signaling for Victor to climb up between the cedar's limbs for a better look. Now Victor counted the heads below, 
there were only five. The dark, squarish heads with sweeping hair so different from Victor's own were almost indistinguishable from one another. But Lyquin's head, now missing in the count, was different. His head cast a perfect oval. This, Victor knew, for he had studied Lyquin since they were small boys, had watched him grow taller than Victor's reach, observed the muscles in his legs hardening though they'd run the same distances, jumped from the same boulders into the same rivers. As he sat upon the branch, Victor quieted himself, crushing all the wind's words into one long hum, listening for Lyquin's thick breaths, the sound of a near man among boys. He found the crag notes in the tree beside him, where he made out Lyquin to balance on the edge of a limb, brushing hair from his eye before steadying his arrow. The boys below began moving about, the skins of their moccasins crunching inside the old snow, causing the ram to start. Victor watched as Lyquin leapt from the tree, his bowed legs like a spider's carrying him over the white terrain while the others looked on their expressions filled with equal parts terror and awe as Lyquin took aim at the sheep, sighs like a bear that now ran so fast and so hard into the distance it seemed it might run itself into the night sky. But then it was as if the ram had come upon a mighty boulder, for it stopped upon its cloven hooves, inside a perfect circle of sunlight with rays so comely and brilliant that they shone on the milky fleece of the ram's rump as though gifting the forbidden to Lyquin. A few months earlier, alongside the mouth of the canyon, Victor sat with the same six boys to begin his first fast. Below them was the sky, painted sapphire blue, and a sea of red earth not yet covered in frost, but at the mercy of low, diaphanous clouds that lingered like protective mothers. The rock wall behind them, barbed and looming, protected the boys from an early winter's wind, and the rugged peak above them, known as where they see the people seemed to promise, as it had for generations of boys before, that their visions would soon appear. But several days passed, and while the other boys began to see their box bay, Victor beheld nothing but bigger sky. He maintained his fast, sweated for additional days, prayed with an earnestness and fervor unmatched, and still, Victor's vision did not come. And though this should not have been a source of dishonor, Victor could not be convinced that his humiliation was unfounded. Perhaps I had the vision but did not know. Father had laughed with disgrace in his throat, for the other men in the smoke lodge had looked upon them both with quick, sharp glances, reminding them, though it may not have been intended, that they were not absolute by blood. Black-skinned, this was how Father described himself. Half black-skinned, half some unknown tribe, Edward Rose was a revered absolute war chief who served also as a guide to foreigners. Men who thought themselves explorers, profiteers, compensated father handsomely to push them beyond the expeditions of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. And they did so because Edward Rose, though indeed black-skinned, had been with the clan most of his life and was nothing short of obsalike. But Victor's mother's birthright could not be so easily explained. Rosa Rendon was of a far different people a people she tried once or twice to explain to Victor in clipped phrases long before he understood he'd need to know of them for his story to be spoken. For Victor, Ma's history began when father brought her to live with the Upsalike after losing his three wives in a horse raid. As it was told, father's next intended had been chosen, a big-boned widow from a neighboring clan. 
But before their introduction, father set off for a year-long expedition and to the dismay of the clan's women, returned home with a strange woman, more black-skinned than he, who claimed she was born in the middle of a sea on a land she called Trinidad. That's beautiful. And yeah. I love how I love how it's telling such a compelling story, but you can really just feel all the all the meaning and all the details and the details are just so beautiful and thank you. Yeah. I am so amazed by how quickly we seem to cross land and sea and time and space, but know every little step that it took you to get from place to place. So that's really awesome. Yeah. Just beautiful. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'm happy to be here to share it. Thank you. Um, and you can buy Lauren's latest novel, Book of the Little Axe, at your local bookseller or on bookshop.org. Um, thank you so much, Lauren, for reading with us and sharing your expertise and giving us your wisdom. Uh, will you stick around for some trivia, though? Uh-oh. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Up next, we're going to discover uh, what unexpected novels were actually based on true events. Welcome back to the Interloop Radio. We turn now to some research-related trivia. I promise I will go easy on you, Lauren. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, also, you you two can totally collaborate on your answers, but you don't have to come to a consensus. You can, uh, you know, talk it out and then give different answers if you like at the end. Great. So, yeah, Lauren, I'm not good at this either, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which of the following murder mysteries was inspired by true events? Multiple answers accepted. Oh. A, Psycho by Robert Block. B, Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. C, The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Or D, The Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. Mm. Ah, this is hard. Tricky, tricky. I know. <laughs> oh no, I, I'm going with. I think. I think we should go with B and C. What do you think? Was I, that Agatha Christie? Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, Conan Doyle. Yes. Yeah, I'm with Those you. Those are what you're thinking. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So oh, let's we're in B. agreement. Yeah. Okay. So B is right. Uh, Murder in the Orient Express by Agatha yeah. Christie um, was based on the Lindbergh baby. Um, right kidnapping so you got that one um the hound of the baskervilles was not exactly a true story um while visiting the english landmark of dartmoor with a friend doyle learned about the legend of a man named richard cabell who was said to have sold his soul to the devil and then was met by a pack of giant hellhounds who escorted him to the afterlife so it was based on a rumor legend all right that one is borderline yeah (laughs) 
Um, but Psycho and the Silence of the Lambs were also based on true events. Oh no! <laughs> I don't want to know. I know the, the the Psycho one is pretty gruesome. I'll leave out the gruesome details, but it was basically based on a real murderer in Wisconsin known as the Butcher of Plainfield. Oh, um, yeah, Plainfield Ghoul. Yeah, and then Silence of the Lambs um, was inspired by the real life relationship between a criminology professor Bob Keppel and serial killer Ted Bundy. Bundy helped Keppel investigate the Green River serial killings. I knew that, but I didn't realize Silence of the Lambs was from that. Was That's awesome. Not, yeah. yeah, I'm like, yeah. A, for whatever reason, I, I'm obsessed with Ted Bundy. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's a pretty charismatic character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm always, so I'm, I was really upset that we didn't get to dig into his brain a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely like upsets all of our assumptions about humanity. Right. So I can see why. See why. Okay. Uh, this one's going to be a little easier and sillier uh what was the name of the real whale upon which moby dick was based a moby dawn b mocha dick c (laughs) old tom (laughs) or d humphrey i'm gonna go old tom that's just me i was more i was thinking that but now i'm thinking maybe humphrey but that just seems too that seems too absurd okay I, i'm gonna i'm gonna go with old tom with you yeah well all of uh well actually old tom and humphrey are actual whales that are well known for other reasons okay um but the name is Mocha Dick. Yes. <laughs> Which, I feel like I should have known that I wouldn't have made that one up, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's so funny. Mocha Dick. Okay. Yeah, because they, uh, whalers would name whales like Jack, Tom, or Dick normally, and Mocha is the name of the island that they saw uh, that particular whale. Totally makes sense. All okay. Right. Okay. Man, mm-hmm. we're really bombing here. But I'm not actually surprised I'm bombing. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, you've already gotten one right. I, I call that a win. <laughs> okay. Which of these classic horror stories was inspired by true events? Also, multiple answers accepted. A, Turn of the Screw by Henry James. B, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. C, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Or D, Dracula by Bram Stoker. Okay, so I know Dracula is based on, like, again, like, kind of rumors and a person, right, Lauren? (laughs) Well, yeah, I was actually thinking that about Frankenstein, too, right? Like, that, that, um, that there was, that, you know, there was this rumor thing. I'm not sure, um, about that. But I think B is, is a certainty. What was B again? Be Jekyll the strange Hyde, case of right? Dr. Jekyll yeah. and Mr. Jekyll Hyde. And Hyde. Yeah, that yeah. one I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good about. Yeah. Hmm. So do you want to go all three, B, C, and D? You want to get crazy? Well, why not? Yeah. It's, just right. it's like hanging your leg. We're just going to put them all on. That's right. <laughs> I should have confetti drop from the ceilings. You got it. B, C, yeah. and D are all <laughs> That's teamwork right there. That's, That's right. <laughs> um, Yeah. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was inspired by the story of William Brody, a 18th century burglar who managed to fool his contemporaries into thinking he was a respectable man while leading a life of crime in secret. Okay. 
Uh, Frankenstein was inspired by the alchemist Yonin Conrad Dippel, a controversial figure rumored to have robbed graves and experimented on corpses at Frankenstein Castle. Oh, probably someone just trying to do early days anatomy, you know, figure stuff out. Yeah, right. but he was convinced he could bring a body back to life by injecting oh, it with oh, blood okay. and bone. Yeah, yeah that's a little I mean, different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little above and beyond. All right. Um, okay. And then Dracula is actually based on a prince whose right. nickname was Dracula. Um, right. And he was known for a lot of gruesome things, but his favorite um, way of killing people was impaling them with a wooden stake. Wasn't oh. it also like Vlad the Impaler was maybe Dracula? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. him. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. cool. Vlad the Impaler. Yeah, aka Dracula. <laughs> Drac. <laughs> Old Drac. <Cool. laughs> uh, okay, a couple more fun ones. Um, Jaws by Peter Benchley was based on quote the most unique set of shark attacks that have ever occurred, involving a great white shark and five victims over the course of twelve days. Where did those shark attacks occur? A, along the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. B, on the Atlantic coast of Florida. C, on the Jersey Shore. D, along the Pacific coast. Jersey Shore. Courtney's from Jersey. (laughs) I was in Jersey. (laughs) I feel like it was, you know, in this this sort of mid-Atlantic area. Mm -hmm. Am I crazy? Yeah. No, Um, no, that's true. Okay, let's go with Jersey. Yeah. You got it. It was I on the Jersey right. Shore. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all those shark attacks now, really happened. <laughs> yeah, it was um, Mary. What was that? No, I'm trying to remember the name. The shark's name. Anyway, we we ha- every couple of summers we have one that comes up and they track it because they can like, you know follow it on the the with the radar. Now it's pretty cool. Crazy. That's the end of my story. All right. That's it in my story. All right. Here's the last one. Uh, the Shining by Stephen King was based on what experience that King had at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado. A, King and his wife were the only guests in the massive hotel and they were served dinner in an empty dining room accompanied by canned orchestral music that echoed through the empty halls. B, King dreamt about his three-year-old son running through the corridors screaming as he was being chased by a fire hose. C. King went into the bathroom of the of the notoriously haunted hotel, pulled back the pink curtain of the tub, and thought, "What if somebody died here?" <laughs> D. King was inspired by the hotel's remote location, grand size, and eerie desolation. Oh man, I'm thinking all of them. I feel like it's all of them. Um, I'm just going to stop you right there. It is all of them. <laughs> That's what I I know you were saying that you were gonna bomb, and you even got my trick question. Well, it's Stephen King. I haven't told you guys on another episode. I'll tell you guys my Stephen King story. So yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's all I got, girls. Oh gosh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for playing along, Lauren, and thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. I guess time doesn't really matter on the audio. (laughs) Virtual time space. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It was fun. It was really fun. Thank you. And that's our show. 
We'll be back every other Monday. <laughs> I was like, yes, we will. Um, and the Inner Loop is not just a podcast. That's right. We do readings, retreats, workshops, a summer residency, and more. To read all about it, visit us at theinnerlooplit.org, where you can also donate to support us and local literature. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Inner Loop Lit. Today's episode was produced by me, Rachel Kuntz. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan, and our technical advisor is James Skinner. Thanks again to Lauren Francis Sharma for joining us on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, quietly reflect on your amazing taste in podcasts. Or better yet, (laughs) while you do that, leave us a review. (laughs) Such as, you can't appreciate magical combinations like peanut butter and jelly, oysters and champagne, or meat and potatoes until you've heard the witty banter of Rachel and Courtney. Oh my God. Please please don't (laughs) don't forget to subscribe. (laughs) Subscribe. Subscribe so you never miss an episode or Saunders whining in the background. Happy writing. Right on. (laughs) 